You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it gives people something to complain about. I'm Stina Light. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 42, Life, World Building, and Everything. Hello, friends. Welcome back. We're happy to have one of a guest I'm super excited about because this is one of my oldest, dearest friends in this business. Stina Light! Hey! Hey, Marshall. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm very, very excited. Tell everybody out there what you do and where they can, what what wondrous books they can get from you to, to learn all the beautiful things you've done. Okay, so I am a science fiction and fantasy writer. Go figure. Um, I have currently four novels and uh, a few short stories out in the world. In 2020, I published a short story called Forgiveness is Warm Like a Tear on a Cheek. And it's in the anthology Evil in Technicolor. My first novel was Of Blood and Honey, and it was up for a, they used to call it a Campbell Award. What do they call it now? It's now the Astounding Award. Astounding Award, yes. I was up for an Astounding Award twice. So first novel was, see, I told you I'm terrible at this. (laughs) (laughs) First novel was Of Blood and Honey. My second novel was And Blue Skies from Pain. Both of those novels are set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles in the 1970s. And it's kind of an urban fantasy situation. The main character is a Catholic who thinks his father is a Protestant that got his mom pregnant and then banished. His father is actually uh, Bran of the Fianna, if you know anything about the Irish mythology or whatever. Um, yeah, <laughs> Cass nodded her head. That's good. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so he's like, one of the nephews of Finn McCool. Um, So anyway, and his father is a shapeshifter and the main character just doesn't know it. So he's actually a shapeshifter, doesn't know it, gets pulled into the troubles, becomes a wheelman for an IRA bank robbing unit, and then everything goes horribly, horribly awry. Um, So that's that. Then there's uh, a second duology, Cold Iron and Blackthorn, which is an epic fantasy and that would be too long to explain because it's really complicated and it never really had an elevator pitch. Um, but it's set in like the a, a secondary world with technology with a technological level around the 18 around 1800 or late 1700s, early 1800s. So there's that. And then there's Persephone Station, my first science fiction novel, which comes out on January 5th. And I'm very excited about. And its elevator pitch is a magnificent, a gender flipped Magnificent Seven set in space with six women of color and one white woman who never speaks. I can think of many people who are going to be excited by that description. <laughs> I'm, I really had a good time writing it. I get very frustrated with how many times film and, and novels and just media in general, they only allow space for one female character. Two, if they're really stretching it. But, and, and they generally don't have non-binary characters at all. And, and my novel has a non, non-binary character named Rosie. So, I don't know. I just, I get so tired of hearing people whine and complain about how being inclusive is just checking off checkboxes and it just, there's no literary merit to it or whatever. And me being me, I took it as a dare. <laughs> so I 
decided it was time to show people that, you know, writing inclusively does not, you can write inclusively as extremely inclusive and it not be coming, it, have it not even come off as being done on purpose. You know what I mean? I just feel like if, if you can't do that, if you cannot write inclusively at all, then you're probably a bad writer. And if you can't read inclusively, you're probably not a very good reader either. <laughs> wow, I Which, just kind of went off the ledge there, didn't I? Um, but that was exactly the ledge I wanted you to jump off of and, <laughs> and take us to. I mean, that's just, it's my, it's my... Uh, Raison de terre. Rant about that. I, I love ranting about that, but... <laughs> Well, and one of the other reasons why I was so excited to, to have you on here and talk to you is because you've really, in your writing career, you've really run the whole gamut of possibilities in terms of having to deal with world building because you, you, know, you did historical urban fantasy where I know you did an absurd level of research to get everything right. And then you have your secondary world fantasy, which you did really unique, intriguing things with. And now you've done science fiction, which is, um, I'm not sure if it's, you would qualify it as hard sci-fi or more space opera or somewhere in between, but because I haven't gotten a chance to read the whole thing yet. I've heard you do readings from it, and I'm super excited to get my paws on it. I, I wouldn't call it... There's definitely science in it, but the science that's in it is mainly around artificial general intelligence. So I did a lot of research around that, largely because uh, I feel like you have to start somewhere. It's just, it's so overwhelming, right? I mean, I've always loved science fiction, always loved science fiction. And I came to it first, to be honest. But I've never felt like I was an adequate enough writer to actually write science fiction. And it's all connected to that whole, women don't write science fiction. And that really makes me angry. <laughs> so I was very intimidated by the prospect. And just the whole idea of all of the science that I needed to know, but not really, um, was pretty tough at, at, at first, at the first go, but which is kind of ridiculous. So when you think about it, it's just, it's really weird that I was like, oh my gosh, science fiction is so intimidating. I can't write science fiction. Hey, I know what I'll write. I'll write an urban fantasy set in 1970s Northern Ireland during the Troubles in the most, and, and discuss extremely, extremely touchy topics. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? That could be fine. Yeah, whatever. It's it's what I do to myself. <laughs> I totally get it, though. I feel like people almost have more expectations of an imagined future than they do of a period of history they may not know as much about. And for a lot of readers, that's sort of like, oh, yeah, I've heard of the Troubles, but I don't know that much about them. But I've watched lots of sci-fi, so I clearly know exactly how faster than light technology works. And so I can see that being like a, a head game thing with yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and, but there are people who live through that who are still alive. So I mean, that's the even more intimidating part of it. And um, so, yeah, but we're here to talk about science fiction. <laughs> well, on that idea, there are, that is one of those things where you see it a lot with science fiction, especially people who are sort of craving the more hard science fiction, which for me is where where the writer shows you the math and <laughs> which I, I never see the need for, but like clearly there's an audience for that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of have a, a problem with, with the whole hard versus soft science fiction right. thing, because I feel like that designation is just a made up thing to, to for some dudes to try to gatekeep women out of science fiction. Right. That's how it feels to me whether or not it's actual or whatever, but that's how it feels. 
every time people really insist on talk, discussing whether or not it's high, hard or versus soft. I feel like stories are about characters. And if you want to read something that's only about the technical end of things, go get a technical manual. I mean, seriously, <laughs> that's my stance on it. Um, but I also feel like it's a really good idea. I, I enjoy, one of the things I enjoy when I read is learning new things via fiction. One of the ways that I, I made an A's in history in college and the reason why <laughs> in American history, and the reason why is because I read a lot of fiction set in uh, early American history. And my professor found out about that and was like, oh my God, yes, you know, totally do this. So for me, part of my research is to not only read memoirs, if it's a, a current history or um, history written by people who lived it in one way or another, um, and being careful of the perspectives of the person that writes about that particular type of history because that's a factor for sure um so i look at all of those things but i also um read fiction set in written by people who like for for the troubles and all of that i actually read a lot of fiction written by northern irish crime writers because that helped me remember all of the facts that are connected. So with so with science fiction, I really wanted to pick subjects that I was interested in, and I I, I enjoy psychology and how, discussing the human brain and how that works, and I find it fascinating when people discuss artificial general intelligence. AI is just the simplistic end of the of the artificial general intelligence pool. <laughs> um, AI is just a, an algorithm. That's AI. AGI is when you you start discussing um, something that at least attempts to have uh, deal with more complex issues and can do more than one thing. Um, so that's the distinction between those two. Um, so when you're talking about in fiction, in science fiction, when you're talking about an artificial person, that's an AGI, which is why I use AGI versus AI. Yeah. See, we all learn something. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like that designation hard versus soft. I, it just annoys me. Ultimately, it's all made up, right? And science fiction is, in fact... There's a reason science fiction is lumped in with fantasy because it's all surrealist. It's, it's all dreamlike, all of it. What if? Right. And a big part of what we're doing is making, making all the work we're doing to present that seem plausible without seeming weighed down. Cause that's, you know, that, that tends to be the big balancing act in terms of oh this book has too much world building oh this book has not enough world building is how well you did the work in making it plausible and then how well you hid your work in in exactly keeping it from being boring but i think the some of the things is there are the kinds of people that the kinds of books they want more so in science fiction than fantasy but i think in both they want the technical manual some readers like some readers do. Like, they want to know, like, you know, I read too much Honor Harrington before I finally bounced, but was annoyed the whole time I was reading it, because it was like, why is he giving me all the numbers of the speeds of missiles and their distances, and how far away each ship is, and, you know, every little, like... And but there was somebody who was probably taking that information and getting on a spreadsheet and, you know, doing all the work to be like, yeah, okay, that that tracks the math works okay that's good i, I accept his premise <laughs> <laughs> for some reason it i immediately thought of galaxy quest <laughs> you know that scene where they're like okay all right 
who has all of the data on all the tunnels, the maintenance tunnels, so-and-so. I mean, it's like somebody actually made up data on maintenance tunnels because I know for sure that no Star Trek show ever had that really mapped out. Somebody just randomly decided to make it up. Oh, but let me tell you, I have found a full schematic for a Klingon bird of prey and used it to write fanfic. It's out there. Oh, I, I have somewhere the old school that my uncle gave me years ago, like from... 1973 of the entire deck plans for the for the starship enterprise and like yeah that those feels things really fully necessary People... to me fully necessary i was the kid who um when i was doing star wars stuff back in the day and and still do but when i was like in my teenage years and, and like still just getting into it i would buy like the guides but those weren't good enough for me like you could buy like the guide to weapons the guide to vehicles they didn't have the details. I had to buy the role-playing books to get exactly that kind of information you were talking about. Like, how far can... What's this gun's range? What's this blaster's range? How far can it go? How many <laughs> charges does, does it, get? it get? I needed to know that just in my soul for some reason. And... There is nothing wrong with that. And that information was there for, for those of us whose brains work like that. And I, I love it. That's That's... Yeah. I think that's great. There's nothing wrong with it. I just have a problem with it being a requirement in order to be this tall as a, as a writer. You know what I mean? That I have a problem with. But yeah, I mean, there's a, I know with Of Blood and Honey and Blue Skies from Tain, I was very careful about how I handled the world building because it had to be seamless because I was basically taking Americans because I, I wrote the the books with Americans in mind I'm not going to tell somebody their own history that's ridiculous <clears throat> I'm an American and I'm not Irish and American Irish is not anywhere in the vicinity of Irish Irish we will just start that off um so with that in mind I was taking people and then dropping them into a foreign world and there are a lot of organizations and a lot of acronyms that, and a, there's a lot of slang that makes a lot, no sense whatsoever to Americans. So I had to do that seamlessly. I had to do it in a way that made sense for characters who are actually natives to all of those things to discuss those things and use those words and yet also include the American reader in, it was it was an interesting little balancing act. I felt like I did pretty good with it. And, and also, and then I was also looking up every little thing. I was doing that schematic thing, right? I had to, I had black and white photographs that I that I referenced. I had maps from the era. I had so I had to know which street went from where and why and all that stuff. Um, so five years of, of background on that just to navigate all of that business. And then I thought, well, screw it. I'm, I'm trying, I'm tired of having to do five years of data research in order to write something. So I think I'm just going to go with epic fantasy. That'll be easier. No problem. <laughs> that was a completely other ex extreme because I needed to have, um, I didn't even have like the basic, city map i had to make everything up right as you know um and so that's a whole other set of pro world building problems that one one gets to play with and i'm not exactly i know some french but i'm not proficient at it so and i'm because i'm not a linguistics person i had to there's no way I could stack up to Tolkien making up entire languages and so forth. So I borrowed from Finnish and Swedish and Norwegian kind of took it from there. Um, also Latin because Rome, there's a lot of, yeah. Always a fan of borrowing from Latin. Just, just take <laughs> it. It's good for good for all purposes. Yeah. So, so there's that. So that was the other extreme. And then I feel like science fiction is somewhere in the middle. 
it, it feels somewhere in the middle, even though it's even more, it's an even larger map with space opera, right? Because you have to think on a galactic level. So, yeah. That, that's so where my, my completest world building brain got me into so much trouble when I was building a space opera setting. Because I would, A, want to be like, well, I have to like use real stars because I'm not just going to make up random stars because that's cheating. So then I'm like, okay, I have a whole list of like, all the stars within a hundred light years of earth and then figure out what they all are. Cause you know, that's the sort of insane thing I like to do. And then once I did that, I'm like, well, okay, I figured out this culture that lives exactly 99.7 light years away, but what's on the other side of them? Fuck, I have to figure that out now too. <laughs> like yeah. I have a problem. And that's why, I mean, that's why I, we started this podcast is because I had to at least, you know, if I'm going to have a problem, I'm at least going to have enablers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just make, make them up um, <laughs> and just make it plausible. It doesn't have to be right. Right. That's true. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. And it's just my weird brain of like wanting to be like, okay, so because I done... I had first done like a star map and then I'm like, okay, so this star is, you know, seven light years from earth. And I'm like, wait a minute, there is no star like that. Seven light years from earth. Ah. <laughs> like, I had a period of time where like, when they were first like making those big announcements of like, we found this planet around this star. And I just went like, fuck, now I have to change everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I finally, I finally got some, calmness about that sort of thing but but yet i'm a freak and <laughs> well i mean i think we all are to to degree in one way or another so there is that but uh yeah i got somebody somebody got upset because i actually don't have a date on persephone station there's no year setting on it at all and i did that on purpose which can be a really handy tool when you're doing science fiction by not being too specific about things, then especially about dates, that gives you a lot of flexibility. And like Firefly didn't ever like, actually, I think in one episode they told you it was 25 something or the, but they did a lot of like vague hand wavery, like the earth got used up. So we went somewhere else and that's all, you know, <laughs> and, and then rivers and, like, you know, a day is a vestigial unit of time measurement. It doesn't mean anything in space. Anyway, what does a year mean in space? Exactly. Exactly. And you know, whose year are you going to use different planets or different distances from different suns? So what's the standard rate? I mean, and then you have to figure all that nonsense. And then also you have to make it so that it doesn't date itself, which when you look at all, all of the old, uh, science fiction the in the year 2000 we will have <laughs> and I also feel like some uh, part of the reason why uh, the stuff that was written in the 60s and the 70s has that happy little positive future patina on it is a lot of these individuals were writing in such a way they were like hey I get to see all this stuff in 40 or 50 years right I think that's some of it but uh, but at the same time, it dates the work and makes it less universal. So I that's why I decided not to put a date on any of it uh, year wise because I what's what's the point in doing that? But I would I do put in Wednesday. It's Wednesday, or uh, it's four o'clock Thursday or whatever. I I do do that. And, and there are seasons, because there are seasons, and, and there are days of the week. But other than that, I don't mess with the year. I just feel like we all have to make decisions on what we're going to fill in with detail and what we need to leave blank. And I feel like the blanks are just as important as the things that we fill in. Oh, and absolutely. can tell every bit as much of the story. I was going to say, just using that negative space to let the reader bring their own fill into that. Like, what year is Persephone Station set in? 
far enough into the future that these things exist. And by not nailing it down to a specific year, I think you can give your reader that freedom to be like, is it, you know, 500 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years? It, that kind of doesn't matter. In ter- it, all that really matters is far enough that this that this is where we are. And, and I think that can work really, really well to your advantage in terms of leaving those things open and not having to give, here's the history of space travel and how we ended up going to another star. And, and... I also don't explicitly state why this is a world without sexism it just is and again i think that's a excellent way to go especially especially when you're doing i mean good lord we've heard so many times with you know secondary world building and science fiction are just like well that's just realistic because that's what history was like you no, you don't need to do that like i mean you don't and here's the thing i'm i'm really tired of reading stories about this the woman who has to go against society and the sexual harassment and 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 abuse and make her way and fight her way through all this garbage right i just wanted to have write something where women didn't have to do any of that crap where women and other genders just didn't deal with any of that, right? Um, and it was centered on women and other genders, not men. I don't explain why it's that way, because I don't know how many books and movies and so forth are written and and are made all about entirely about men, and there are no women in sight. There might be one in a background, maybe. Because one of those guys has to have a wife or a girlfriend who probably will get killed or threatened to make, you know. But other than that, yeah, there's way too many stories that are that. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) in the first few Star Wars movies, all of the Star Wars movies, from what I remember, all of the pilots that are running around in the background, they're all men. There are no women. And it was a big deal to me when they finally made a Star Wars movie where some of the pilots running around to jump in in the freaking ships are women and it freaked me out i started crying because i had never seen that and represent representation is extremely important i wanted to write about a world where women didn't have to contend with that nonsense where gender was not a big deal and that it wasn't binary and it was not a big deal and that humanity had moved past all of that. I wanted to show, have, I wanted to write something that was an adventure for the rest of us because we deserve to have adventures and fun and be badasses too. Also, I'm really tired of everything always, particularly with white women. Why, why does it, romance is okay. I I don't have a problem with romance. In fact, I really, one of my favorite genres for movie watching is actually, um, Romantic comedies. I love good romantic comedy. Um, But for for Pete's sake, (laughs) can we please have plots where the winning scenario is not getting the man? I mean, can we please? I mean, there's so much more to life. We have to demonstrate that women can be happy in other ways. Otherwise, you're just stuck. I, I really believe in ha- giving options to everyone. I mean, you can't be what you can't imagine, right? I think what a lot of that brings us around to is a good consideration of like, when you are showing your world building, how much do you need to teach the reader? How much do you need to push against their presumptions? Um, you know, choose, don't presume is the big thing we talk about as writers on this podcast, but your reader is likely to presume certain things based on aesthetic, honestly, if nothing else. You know, if they pick up something that looks medieval, they're going to make certain assumptions about it. And so then what is the craft work that we have to do in correcting those assumptions, in saying, no, our world doesn't work quite like what you're assuming, whether it is based on your assumption of history or the present day or common stereotypes or tropes. What do we do as writers to to do that correction for the reader, to make them realize they are not in a world exactly like what they may have assumed when they first picked up the book? I think 
one of the good tactics to use is try to use your point of view to explicitly show the contrast of what they might necessarily expect as a norm and then and then confound that expectation through that in my upcoming book velocity of revolution which comes out february 9th um, i i <laughs> i created a culture where pansexuality and polysexuality is the norm of the culture and to make that explicit i have a scene where the main character has met up with his sister who has been studying in another country and she's talking about like well i have to have just one girlfriend when i'm there because if they get really mad if you have more than one lover at a time and that's weird isn't it and he's like yeah that's really weird <laughs> like what but like that's what i have to do when i'm there and that's fine i'll do that that's cool but that's really strange and i'm curious marshall how far into the book is that scene um it's i mean it's pretty early it's one you know it's maybe within the first I want to say 40 to 50 pages. I'd have to look at the actual page count because and, it's pretty early. Like, that's my instinct is that if you can do one big presumption breaking thing like that early on, it will at least shake the reader up and have them thinking, oh, okay, I actually don't know what's going on here. I'm going to shelve my assumptions, hopefully, if they're, you know, wise and charming readers, as all of ours are. I know. <laughs> um that they'll at least like then start questioning like, oh, wait, is everything else like I assumed it would be? Or do I need to put those assumptions on the shelf and let the writer tell me exactly what's going on? Yeah, Persephone starts the first, the opening scene starts off with the with the aliens. And we're in the point of view of Polly. It's pretty much, it takes the reader out of their norms from the first moment. And like the next chapter, you're in the point of view of, Rosie, who's non-binary. So, again, I, I think I just I started off with this is not this is not just Earth <laughs> um, right away, and then and then they have to go from there. So, I I, I think I would agree that you do kind of have to like shake shake loose that whole this is not this is not all your assumptions may not necessarily work here. So pay attention. And that again can be the real challenge in terms of what your readers or other audience are expecting in terms of how much world building you're going to give them up front and what, what world building even is. Cause I think, I think there is actually a lot of disagreement on what that word even means among a lot of readers because you'll get that there's too much world building. There's too little world building. And what do they even mean by that? Because <laughs> I think oftentimes they don't even know. Yeah, I got hit a lot because in in Cold Iron and Blackthorn, I got hit with the whole, there's not enough world building in here. And it was because I didn't have a massive info dump. Uh, because I was used to dealing with world building via the dialogue and the names and the fashions and the furniture and the description of the scenes and the types of government and then the types of politics that's politicking that's going on and like all of the of blood and honey and and blue skies from pain taught me to show not tell on the world building front um when I did the epic fantasy series uh, duology. Even my editor was like, "Hey, where's the world building in this?" And I'm like, "But it's it's there. Um, they have their own. They have slang that they use. They, they there's all kinds of things going on. But what? I, but that. But the conclusion I came to was that epic fantasy, in particular, it's expected that you have info dumps." Um, and if you do not have info dumps and you do not use them at all, then the readers are going to get very upset. Um, as far as science fiction goes, I think that it depends on your style of science fiction and what your subgenre of science fiction is. Uh, for me, I did a little bit of info dumping and I tried to like break it up and not keep it in this huge, massive chunk. 
and then employed the other thing where I was using subtle details. Yeah, I think, at least for me, that's the style that I prefer to use, where you're doing showing, not telling, but in showing, you're telling the, the reader a lot if they're paying attention. Like, that's that's the dream. Like, there's always areas where I, you know, hit a wall in terms of, like, how do I, especially things like clothing or or what buildings look like, and I'm like, how, how do I do this without, like, showing my hand of, like... These are the explicit cultures that I'm scraping the serial numbers off of to, to create this culture. And that that's where I always find myself having trouble. But like the idea of showing more than telling and hoping that your readers are able to just sort of grab onto the train and run along with them and not get too confused. Um, yeah, and, and honestly, you're not going to get everybody. I mean, yeah. <laughs> because again, you're never going to tell just the right amount or show just the right amount for everyone. There are a lot of, in, in the second chapter, there's a lot of of gangs that I rattle off, gang, gang, <clears throat> gang names that I rattle off because it's a, it's a crime-ridden town. Brenner is. I never intended for anybody to sit around and go, well, let's plot this out and figure out who is what and where. I was just, it's, it's, it's world building. Um, but there are people who are very confused by that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, you can't keep up with the class. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> There's certain, you have to be able to determine as a reader what is something that you need to really zoom in on and pay attention to and what you don't need to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Some people get really spooked by proper names, by proper nouns. Oh, now. my God. Like oh, yeah. people in places and they and I think it's just a, a way different people's brains work and they get spooked and assume that like anything that's a proper noun, I have to remember Whereas I'm just like, no, I'm just going to file that away. If I need it and it comes back, I will retrieve that information and add to it. But yeah. And that's I just, the thing you have to do, right? Yeah. You sort of can't factor in all readers simultaneously. It's it's impossible. So when I was a, a DM in college, I mean, there was one player I'll never forget. <laughs> who This should be good. Should be excellent. Uh, excellent. Oh, yeah. This is really good. His favorite thing to do is I would describe a scene and there would be a goose girl herding geese in the background. And he would do what he would do every freaking time is run up to the goose girl and say, hi, how are you? What is your name? What do you want to do with your life? What are you? Are you a thief or a? You know, and I'm like, it's a goose girl. She's, <laughs> she's a goose girl. That's what she does. She, she herds geese and collects goose eggs and and sells goose down that's she's a goose girl <laughs> i was in a group once where yeah our, our our gm eventually realized that he had to have names for all his npcs because we were going to try to befriend all of them whoever they were and so he just sort of started planning for that eventually became the code word goose girl in my high school group we had we had a, a running gag when like it's clear we were not prepared to improv this random NPC or because of that. It was just Bob. <laughs> it was just Bob. That's good, though. That's a good signal to the players <laughs> that, like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about this particular NPC. Just keep going. That's good. I like that. Part of the scenery. <laughs> I, I've always been sort of frustrated by the call for, like, this needs more world building. And I'm always like, what exactly do you mean? Because, like, sure, I have a spreadsheet of all the cities in the world that has 847 cities, but, like, you don't need to know that, and you don't really want me to list that off. So what do you want to see that you're calling more world building? When, when I was um, shopping Thorn of Denton Hill first, and one of the agents who, like, I got to the you know full request and then they were like do a rewrite with more world building and i was like what do you mean more world building they're like you know like world building like tolkien or eddings you know that's the sort of thing i'm like i'm like those are two completely different answers <laughs> <laughs>
But yeah, it's like, this is not Homer. We don't want the catalog of ships. That is not the accepted mode anymore. Even Tolkien, like, even Tolkien you can't use as a good reference anymore. Tolkien could not get published today. No. Could not. I remember my, my editor occasionally asked me to take names out because they spook people and I use a lot of them. And one time when I was feeling particularly annoyed about that, I went to the first chapter of Fellowship of the Ring and was like, I'm going to count how many proper nouns there are in this first chapter. I don't remember what the total was, but there's a lot. And most of them you never need to worry about again. And it's just like, that is a way in which standards have changed over time. Readers have different expectations now, and I understand that my editor wants me to, you know, succeed with modern readers because I can't summon readers from the 1960s. But there is a, a whole thing of, of, yeah, who are we comparing ourselves to? What do you mean when you ask for more or for less? On what level are you operating? Is it just about taking out proper nouns? Is it about giving us the catalog of ships? What's the goal? What are we trying to to get to for as many readers as possible. Yeah, I just, in, in my case, I don't, I don't worry about it too much. I just satisfy myself and move along because that's all you can do. I mean, seriously, that is all you can do. <laughs> Though I think also there is, I mean, there is that sort of stereotype of Tolkien, bad Tolkien clone of fantasy where it's just like, here's a bunch of wacky names. Like, I don't know if either of you have seen Happiest Season yet, romantic comedy with with Kristen Stewart and and Aubrey Plaza and Aubrey Plaza. Oh, oh yes, even. I have. But there's a subplot with the with the weird sister who is writing her fantasy novel, and it kind of upset me because every time she's talking about her fantasy novel, she's just sort of rattling off all these like weird species names, like the people she's talking to know exactly what she's talking about. And nobody does. Everyone's, but they're just sort of like, uh-huh, okay, okay. But I'm like, you know, I know a lot of fantasy writers because they're friends of mine. And nobody talks about their book like that. Oh, <laughs> ever. oh some people do. Some people do. But they're generally newbies. Right. There is that fact. But there is the sense of, like, she's talking about this, like, when I say this weird name, you know everything I'm talking about. Which tends to not truly be the case with but but it upset me because it was like especially since spoilers for the movie like in the end when she gets published and she's doing a reading from it and people are and it's presented like here i'm doing the sage reading from my published text which is a big success it's still got this it reads like like bad parody of fantasy rather than something that would actually succeed especially in the year of our lord 2020 when this is supposedly said i i I took it as she was the com comic relief. Oh, she, no, she totally was the comic relief. And I was utterly charmed by her along those lines. But it just, that little thing, just like, it was just this little thorn in me, like, hmm. Somebody doesn't <laughs> read science fantasy book. and doesn't understand is what yeah. I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was upset that it was clearly written by, like, the script, that aspect was written by somebody who does not read fantasy and like that's all they know about that that's the aspect of it that made me like just sort of stew just a little bit on that <laughs> sure sure no that that kind of tweaked some some red buttons for me too honestly i i'll be honest um i mean i but you're talking to somebody who was a bit offended by community uh because i also have a community college degree and didn't appreciate being portrayed in a way that was less than empathetic, I think, at least in the beginning. So I get it. So listeners, we're now reaching the end of our hour. And so we have the fun part as we do every time we have a guest is we've been building this crazy group world over the course of doing this podcast and at some point we really need to start writing down the specific info of this world a little better than we have been um we we, we need to create a wiki for it but that's we're busy people that just hasn't happened yet listeners if you ever want to jump on that particular project we would so love it but that's not going to happen right now but every time we have a guest Stina, we they come up with some crazy new addition to tap 
to add on to the world. Um, Mike Underwood came up with a thing where uh, in one city there are three rival martial arts schools and the details of how they interact with each other. Um, what else? Uh, and R.J. Theodore gave us uh, magical dinosaur poop that became more magical as it fossilized. And and what were some of the other... <laughs> but, like, it can be anything. It can be, you know, whatever weird, crazy, wild thing. To, to give you, since, to give you a little bit of, of framework, our world is magical and it's pretty much universally on a flintlock fantasy sort of level. So okay. th that should give you, that should give you author of flintlock fantasy something to work with something to work with well, well i kind of cheated with mine because i actually stole a lot of actual stuff that was going on during the napoleonic and but anyway that's not cheating that's excellent research <laughs> oh yeah one of my favorite favorite tidbits is like uh having to do with coaches have you ever ridden on a coach? Like, for real? I, I don't think I, I say, have. I've been in I like, want to say yes, but... I mean, I've been in, like, carriages the way that they have, like, you know, at... Hayrides? Well, no, like, Colonial Williamsburg is what I'm thinking of. But that's not, like, a coach coach. That's still open air, and it wasn't for very long. Uh-huh. Tell me something about coaches. Okay, I'm going to tell you about coaches. Do it, do, do it, coaches do it. For fun. All right, and you can totally use this for world building. Okay, so for coaches. All right, there is actually a coach a that you can take, a coach ride that you can take in Texas. There's a, an active coach. Um, they are extremely noisy and uncomfortable extremely noisy all of those movies that you that you see where people are actually talking normally to one another they should be shouting <laughs> um because everything is rattling and uh, there's a lot of vibration going on and there wasn't much in the way of sound dampening um so every every you feel every bump there's there weren't a whole lot of springs um so that's that one thing um, for another, you know, how, how you see in a lot of uh, films that are set during that time there, uh, they have someone at the front of the carriage and someone at the back standing, right? The dude standing at the back of the carriage. Do you know what he's there for? I mean, that, that would be what's called a footman, right? Am I right about that? You're correct. Is he there to fend off villains? <laughs> absolutely. He is yes. absolutely there to fend off vi villains. He is what Americans would technically term shotgun. Because <laughs> crime was so bad. Crime was so bad that if you, you quite often would get hit by highwaymen and, and so forth. Also, stopping at coach coaching inns. There were people there who would listen to, oh, you're on a trip from where? Okay, let's go rob that person's house. So you had to be careful. The home alone effect? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There was like a whole, that was a thing. That was entirely a thing. It was even entirely a thing when uh, uh, like Dickens and Oliver Twist and all, it was, it was a, a thing for a very long time. So that was one of the things you didn't talk to other passengers because then they would figure out what town you were from. And then you didn't know if they were in, in cahoots with a bunch of, with a, a crime ring or whatever. Um, horses don't just run forever. Right. Okay. So when you had to go uphill, everybody had to get out of the coach and walk whatever the weather was you get out of the coach and you walk up the hill and when you get to the top of the hill you get in the coach and then go downhill <laughs> I, I remember hearing that about like the conestoga wagons crossing the american west and things like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i'm just thinking that there are like magical solutions to lots of these problems things we've talked about in the past have been like we've talked about like magical heating but i also feel like for your coaches a magical sound dampening unit so that you can actually hear each other talk could be a thing 
a cone of silence, a magic. Yes. I always felt sorry for for the footman on the back. Do you imagine standing during all of that? For Must hours? be so wind burned. That would be terrible. <laughs> oh my god. Maybe some kind of magical cushiness. Magical shock absorbers. Yes. Magical shock absorbers. And some sort of a magical uh, weight distribution thingy so that when you don't have to get out of the coach, because um, in A Tale of Two Cities, walking up the hill in, in the mud and the rain is not a whole lot of fun based on the description. <laughs> so there is that. Um, so there you go. It's excellent. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Enhanced coaches. I love it. Yes. Well, this has been a wonderful time. I always love every single conversation I've ever had with you, Stina. And this was in no way any exception. Well, thank you. Listeners, really go get every one of Stina Light's books. That's Of Blood and Honey and Blue Skies for Pain and then Cold Iron and Blackthorn and now Persephone Station. Yay, Persephone Station. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a delight. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on February 3rd, where Kate Elliott joins us to talk about transportation. We hope you join us for that one. And we would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to our listeners, fans, and friends, especially those who voted for us to win the Reddit Fantasy Stabby Award for Best Original Nonfiction Audio. We're thrilled to receive such an honor and are very grateful to all of you for being part of our journey. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our web site if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast we would love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts <laughs>